Welcome back to the Seriously Stem Cells podcast, where we discuss everything stem cells. I'm Pim, and I'm Ayo. On today's episode, we are going to continue our exploration into the world of stem cells. Okay. Uh, in today's guest episode, we have Professor Dusko Elisi of Stem Cells. Sciences from King's College London with us. He's a teaching professor with an impressive range of research experience in embryology, human embryonic stem cells, iPSCs, mesenchymal stroma cells, tissue engineering, and regenerative medicine, amongst other things. He is on the editorial board for Future Medicine Publication. He is also happens to be my professor, or my formal professor, that is, from the master program at King's on stem cells and regenerative therapies from bench to market. We're so excited to have you on the podcast. Thank you for joining us today, Professor. Well, hi, Pim. Hi, Ayo. Thank you for inviting me. That's that's honor to be here, actually. So it means that uh, your former students don't despise you, don't hate you, that (laughs) actually have nice something to think about you. Yeah. So this, I did my good job well, I mean. <laughs> oh, you thought so. I guess it's quite a good feedback to have your old students contact you back. <laughs> uh, Absolutely. Oh, well, well, that's good to know. Uh, I basically just wanted to start um, the episode off with asking you um, a question about how you first came to become interested in stem cells and medical science in general. So, I mean, stem cells came really by chance. I was interested in new technologies. Mm-hmm. And for my PhD project, uh, I got PhD in Japan. So we, I, there was a new technology of uh, gene knockout in embryonic stem cells. So to understand function of, of the gene. And that was really new. And so this is how I started to work with mouse embryonic stem cells. And uh, yeah, then well, that, that stayed with me. So later when human embryonic stem cells were discovered and uh, made available for research, I switched to that and uh, stay in stem cell field because it's it's something very powerful, interesting, and just amazing biology. Mm. <laughs> so what was your favorite thing? So you said that you were you did it in your PhD and then you sort of when human embryonic stem cells came about you became interested in that so um is what you found interesting about stem cells the same then as now or has that changed over the years it's become less mysterious at the beginning in the beginning it was you know the first human embryonic stem cells you have oh what you can do this and that and so on but that's now past what 20 something years, yeah. a lot of work has been done. Under um, mechanism of pluripotency of development of what's stemness and more understood. So it is, I see it more like tool now yeah. than something like, now it's a gray box. Uh, before it was black box at the beginning. <laughs> well, that's good to hear. Oh, that's a very interesting sort of, um, uh, area to be focused in and specialized in definitely I think um, especially how big the stem cell industry has become nowadays and uh, there's still quite a lot of room to explore more but um, we're so glad that you picked this so <laughs> it's something that I guess both of us are very interested in and um, would be so keen to know more about it and with that we just want to lead into the new segment that we call stem cells in context where we ask you a little bit more questions about the specific topics um i just wanted to start off with a very interesting um article that i read on bbc um it was published in 2018 and it was titled something like china baby gene editing Uh, that seemed dubious you might be familiar with this (laughs) i know i know where you're going yeah (laughs) Uh, well, we obviously want some comments uh, on, you know, the topics around this and basically wanted to ask you that in the future, do you think that there is a place for genetic modification in embryos as the next level of uh, preventative medical care? And if that's the case, uh, do you think it would be um, crossing any ethical boundaries that has been put in place in today's 
society. This is this is always this, well. This is one of hot topics, and it's always quite interesting to talk and in, about and discuss. Um, the first babies that were actually like genetically modified, coming from genetically modified embryos, that was surprise. Uh, the guy who did it, that uh, why he did it, wanted fame, wanted to be first, and he he was just gambling. He could go. It could go either. It can get Nobel Prize, or it can, it can actually end it up not well. And it didn't end up well. Uh, fortunately, babies so far, as we know, they're okay. Uh, there is no any obvious consequences. There is no much information in, available now about them. Uh, when he did it, when he announced that. Years ago, so everyone jumped on that and complained, Oh, we should regulate this. Should and from world order uh, health organization to individual governments to societies to famous journals, people everyone had opinion and this should be regulated, this should be regulated. And a lot of regulations are put in place, but then on the other hand, technically it's possible. So, if technically it's possible, people would find a way of doing it how sooner or later this way or that way uh maybe in some country where regulations are not full in place maybe even in country very in place but for in private funding and so on but the question is is it ethical or not ethical well it's not yes it's not ethical because you you fiddle with life of someone in the that is not born yet and you are changing uh let's say hoping that you'll prevent something but you don't know about side effects you don't know uh, a lot of things so yes a lot of things have to experiments and verification and validation should happen before really genomic editing should become daily practice but then on the other hand this would be um, a lot of ethicists saying this is slippery slope if you do start with editing uh even asking for disease so we'll do something in the future and that, that, that. but that's that's more like uh talking than what is reality mm. because all all characteristics that people are like oh, we'll make genetic editing use genetic editing to make people smarter or brighter or being good in sports or music we don't know there is it's not one gene it's it's like combination of number of genes you cannot do genetic editing on that <laughs> so it's it's just like okay to get attention yeah so i don't i don't see it uh, big as big problem as people talk and then even let's say it happens but how many million and billion people we have on the earth and if you have one or two genetically modified how that will change human population. Not really. Not much. So. I see. Mm. So, genetic manipulation of embryos as a preventative treatment is unethical and a big no no. But from a conversation with Professor Desco, we learned that the fear around designer babies may be a bit exaggerated as it may be unlikely to be a problem in the future. If we do eventually get to the place, where the genetic manipulation of embryos is allowed, the effect it would have on the genetic framework of the entire population wouldn't be significant enough to pose as a threat or an ethical issue. But this leads us to the question, would genetic manipulation in embryos be more useful as a tool to prevent inherited diseases being passed on to future offspring than the measures we already have in place? Professor Desco discusses pre-implantation genetic diagnosis, or PGD for short, offered by the NHS, which identifies which embryos produced from IVF carry specific genetic abnormalities and those that don't. Because yeah. if you look for disease, so uh, what we technically can do, it is edit mutations, like they cure disease on the embryo level. So edit mutations so to revert in normal wild type, phenotype and so on. But we do have something called pre-implantation genetic diagnostics that you can really if couple carry mutation they go to 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 pgd service and uh, 
okay, they let's say have 10 embryos, you can do biopsy from embryos and this on by PCR find which one is healthy, which one carry mutation. So you can do selection of the embryos. So there is no need for genetic editing. So pre-implantation genetic diagnosis or PGD is already utilized alongside IVF and infertility treatment as a preventative measure, but this begs the question whether stem cells at large can provide answers for those struggling with infertility. The answer wasn't quite what we expected. We also wanted to ask you about um, how stem cells can be used to help uh, individuals that have infertility problems. Um, I know commonly what we use now is IVF. Not really, not really. I, I work in IVF clinics, so okay. I don't, I don't see, I don't see how you can use stem cells for uh, uh, improving fertility. So there is now like uh, it's fashionable, so-called ovarian rejuvenation and uh, like uh, injecting mesenchymal stem cells or uh, pla uh, platelet lysates into ovaries into expanding the fertility age and so on this doesn't make sense mm. it's it's more money making and this is probably more how companies and clinics are trying to uh peddle different ideas just to make money mm. and profit on people who don't know enough about it yeah. and who have problems and who have issues and health issues and they're reaching to new technologies and i think that's not fair what is that well we're just glad that you're debunking this myth around yeah yeah that's I not the response i was expecting at all <laughs> <laughs> oh well, i've got a lot to learn and we hope the listeners also um know more about this now and here we move on to the next question. Yep. So we also wanted to ask you about um, your opinion on accountability when it comes to commercial companies and misleading um, the predicted success of stem cell-based products or research. So because concept of stem cells is very easy to understand and general population can easily understand how technology would work, what stem cells means, what stem cells can in theory bring. And so, a lot of companies are making money on that. A real stem cell therapy or real cellular therapy is very well regulated. And it is usually allogeneic, which means it is cells are coming not from your body, it is from other source. And that's quite well regulated. And uh, some of stem cell therapies are quite efficient. A lot of them are in clinical trial and it's field is moving forward. However, if you're taking so-called stem cells from your body and uh, giving to yourself, so it is autologous, this is not regulated. Okay. There is no way that any government can regulate what you want, what you do with your body. And uh, that whoever does this type of therapy does not make any claims like, oh, this is to cure disease. So it's all about wording. And all those companies are saying, okay, we don't know, we cannot cure, but we can really give F amelioree disease. Your symptoms would be uh, less, you will feel better. Uh, and they put a lot of disclaimers about how it well would work. It's always saying uh, FFs are different from individual to individual. So some people feel better, some people don't feel better, da, da, da. And this is how it works. And they're very careful how it, how they do from medical side so that the patient is not harmed, everything is clean, sterile, properly done. That's very illuminating. I think um, that I think really highlights the damages that could um, be done if these sort of like genetic and cell-based therapies are not done properly or executed properly, that is and the impacts that it can have on future research that comes after it. Absolutely. Or... Yeah. Uh, well, what do you think is um, the importance of, I mean, a long-term study or maybe um, diseases that are quite uh, hard to cure or have maybe limited data on, you know, like treatments and things? Because that, that could be quite, um, quite a challenge, I think, for a lot of um, treatments relating to the CGT industry to be um, approved. 
right? That's correct. You, you need a lot of, you need money and you need patience, so funding and time. Uh, but when, you, when you're developing stem cell therapy, yeah, they may, you may develop something that really works and so on, but how much it costs. And this is also, I think, very, very, very important part. And they may, let's say, be more efficient than anything that exists, but they may be so expensive that they are not affordable or that they are better, but increment in benefits, it's relatively small in comparison with standard therapy. So that that increment would not justify the costs. Mm. And so, for example, uh, now everyone is talking about human oncology. So this is not stem cells, but you can use stem cells to make that. It's uh, CAR T cells or CAR NK cells for treatment of tumors. And it really works. And it doesn't work 100%, but let's say works 50, 60, 70% of the patients can get into remission, maybe half of them can get really cured, but it's very expensive. And uh, if, let's say in UK, if NHS wants to cover that, they will go bankrupt. Yeah. So you have to really draw the line, uh, which of those cell therapies, cell therapies you will cover with insurance, which cases you will cover, which you will not. And so now, as far as I know, there is age limit when it's covered and if you're over that age limit too bad nhs will not cover but it is probably similar in in other countries and so what's with cell therapies it's not only to develop cellular therapy but to work on manufacturing that is less costly to decrease the price and to make it affordable to everyone right now there is number of promising and good therapies but they're not affordable for general population so do you think that we're going to see uh, a stratification of people who um are able to access stem cell therapies and then and even looking at that across countries like who has access to that and who doesn't absolutely absolutely that's inevitable I would say it sounds to me like there's just going to be a bigger and bigger gap of um, people who can access uh, treatments that they need. And that doesn't sound so uh, promising, but uh, sadly, that's a reality that we're facing, I think, in healthcare and like you said, in other industries as well, like technology. But <laughs> just to pivot. Nothing to do about. We have to go. <laughs> we go with the flow. But it doesn't mean that we should stop with research, that we should stop with development of new therapies uh, or I don't not use technology to move on. No, we should. Mm. But probably over time, something that is now unaffordable and expensive, maybe 10 years down the line would be affordable and everyone can get it. So eventually, yeah, maybe everyone would, I like to think like this, that everyone would be able to get it, mm -hmm. not be first in line, but okay, some, sometimes. So. Yeah, that's a good thing. I think uh, as long as the supply sort of meets the demand of people, I think that's when the price and the cost of goods will slowly start to drop especially in this industry. So in this question, uh, the accountability of companies to misleading the success or effectiveness of stem cell therapies are answered by our professor through um, the lens of the government and their limited role uh, that they have on regulating stem cell therapies are autologous. This means that the stem cells are taken from your own body to treat yourself this method is not regulated as the government cannot regulate what you do with your own body. He also points out that it is difficult to distinguish the valid stem cell therapies from the ones that aren't. And that is almost difficult to hold companies accountable as they can claim the treatments vary from individual to individual and can help improve the condition, but not cure. This leads to the next point 
about obtaining enough long-term studies data as a safety measure prior to commercializing stem cell therapies for the larger population. As companies will try to make a safe and more affordable advanced therapies for everyone, it battles against the high costs that may not be justified depending on the type of the treatment. For these treatments to be available to everyone, the public health care, like the NHS, may only be able to fund these treatments for a small group of people who need them. What needs to be done is improvement in manufacturing to reduce the overall costs so it becomes more affordable. Like many other technological advancements before, stem cell therapies will become affordable down the line. Now let's hear about his take on sustainability. On that note, I think um, I just want to pivot a little bit to a different topic because I realize that you also um, an advocate in sustainability in life sciences and you have also recently conducted a KCL short program called Education for the Anthropocene. Is that correct? It's correct. <laughs> yes, so it is it is something that inevitable comes the like if you if you look uh, around what is happening you you see climate change it's uh, it's it's not fake news it's real and uh, uh, I want to at my small way that I can do something it is raise awareness uh, it's very difficult to change habits of people but at least if they're aware of it they may collectively press governments to do to change laws and to do something or if government change law in order to like stop climate change or slow down and so that people don't get angry that they understand why uh, in life sciences it's still far far from uh that can be anything sustainable it's uh it's used a lot of plastics a lot of uh reagents that uh, it, it's a lot of waste waste uh, and pollution coming from but on the other hand uh life sciences are not the wars there are many other wars industries that we should worry about i think i i do agree i think i've heard from one of my friends who's studying phd and she said the, the times that she had to um, use the gloves per day, it probably is amounts to about a mountain, like after a month. <laughs> so I get, I think that sort of um, highlights uh, how much of the sustainability is probably is not seen in life sciences or it's not going to be there yet. I think. Yeah, it's, it's, not, it's not the biggest problem. And so, yes, you, it is like exactly use of gloves and so on. But remember, during the COVID, yeah. the masks everywhere. Mm -hmm. That's true. And I, I will never forget it. It's like I, I was traveling to, to Italy and I rented car and car was completely, all seats were covered in plastic. And he was the, the guy who gave me the car keys and then took all the plastic and threw in the in the bin. Why? And it is, and then you go to to like a beach that was that is like not really cleaned regularly, and you can see all kind of garbage that is brought by sea. And it's a lot. It was a lot of medical waste. The medical waste, a mask, 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 mask. Okay, now it's COVID over. No, we don't see masks, but, but they are somewhere around. So it's such a big problem. What do you think are the best ways that we could tackle that in the life sciences? Like what are the ways that you've seen, like when you're teaching or when you're doing research or anything like that? I think life scientists are still, still, still not. They don't have. They don't have much options. There is no, no enough alternatives. I cannot buy, let's say, buy the biodegradable uh, plastic or cell culture dishes. They don't exist. Mm. And even let's say they exist, they might be twice price than normal and since investment in research is not very high it's difficult to get uh, people will not really go for it so it's more other industry that should be focused I guess this is the opposite of um, the problem before with um, a high 
uh, high demand but not enough supply. But now this is not no demand <laughs> for biodegradable stuff. So therefore, there won't be any supplies. That is. Um, yeah, that's correct. Yeah, it's not yet, but it is. It's the. Uh, it's slowly. It. Let's put in uh, when you get my age, that would be quite hot issue. Now it's not yet, but people are trying to. I don't know make uh, cellular agriculture, try to make uh, foods uh, in the lab, trying to do, and for example, textiles, not from leather, not from uh, animals, trying to do from plants, from, it's it's slowly trying to, to work on the, on this problem, but it is still the beginning. But it has to come from government first. So government has to put rules, then corporations and in and small and medium enterprise will follow and mostly it's important that big corporation follows they may not like it but they would not follow if there is no law so always has to come from government mm. uh once when they follow okay then they will juggle within the rules trying to and then slowly all these new policies and so will get roll down and people will understand and slowly accept new way of living and and how they will relate to the trash and the garbage the disposal and recycling and i mean it was really the 1991 1990 1990 when i went to japan for PhD to be uh, for my phd program and i went to tokyo university lab and there was like five different beans for trash I've never seen that. I was just like, what is this? And they explained me, oh, this is for plastic, this is for this. It's 1990. Oh, I was just born. What were you? I think I and I were just born, right? So was near 1938, yeah. Yeah, I'm 1960, so. But uh, that was to me. And it was people, know, people learn, and then, okay, you start to learn, okay, well, actually, trash, well, we can recycle it people knew about it and it took I don't next 20 30 40 years to bring this into other societies in 1990s I don't think that in UK or even states or anywhere else was maybe in some countries there people recycling now we are talking about let's say the last 10 years we are talking about recycling here so it takes time nothing that the change cannot happen overnight and same i mean it's, it's sustainability and all climate changes i just hope that it's not too late it's interesting you said that because i remember as a child i don't think my auntie recycled it all went, just went into one bin <laughs> it's interesting to compare that to now that's yeah. it and also yeah. it is it is how different governments related to to uh, climate change and sustainability and for example if you have main income of your countries is from uh, oil from petrol let's say emirates or, or um, you will not teach about it because this is this is what uh, what would cut this is what bring you money and so it is quite uh, interplay of uh, of those source of money, source of income, and uh, how it re relates laws and about climate changes. That's it's from country to country different. That's very interesting, and I think you never know really uh, what are going to be the new sort of products or innovations that are going to be. Um, happening that could aid that and make it easier for people because there seems to be new stuff coming in every day and uh, with, with that notion I kind of want to ask you well, can, can, I, can I sorry Tim I just got one, <laughs> one good example so what you think okay guys what you think what is more damaging for an environment electric car or the standard car uh, how I want to say I want to say the standard car, but I feel like it's going to be the electric car. Yes, electric car, because to make lithium battery, it really damage environment. It makes a lot of damage, much more than what you have pollution from standard car. Mm. 
That's but very... But this is again beginning. So in order to re resolve this, to find new source of, I don't know, vague how we can make batteries for electric car, you have to start from somewhere. Mm. But it is for environment is more damaging. That is not what I expected. Yeah. <laughs> Can I ask a quick follow-up question about that and also link it back yeah. to um, what you were saying about stem cell companies and transparency. Um, do you think it's then scientists' responsibility, so researchers, to say this isn't actually effective? Because people are going to market because they want to sell things to you. So the marketing around electric cars was that it's better for the environment, you're doing a good thing, you're reducing your carbon footprint. But um, that's, that's not necessarily the case right now. So, yeah, do you think it's the scientific community's responsibility to say what is actually effective without well, being... People, people do say, but no one listens. Mm, think... It's not sexy. If you, if you go to media, media will not listen. So in this question, the professor's response touch upon a couple of um, topics. Uh, all the way from climate change to um, sustainability that may or may not exist in um, life sciences, how COVID uh, was a period which really showed us uh, a lot of the medical waste that's been done in the industry, uh, specifically to do with the uh, mask and how biodegradable uh, things within the life sciences industry can still be quite a challenge because of the high cost that they may be if they do exist and how um, if they are used in laboratories for research um, it would be quite a difficult alternative for a lot of researchers because of the price itself and the fact that most research are not um, funded uh, quite a lot. So it is not even a realistic uh, alternative for most uh, researchers in life sciences industry. And the uh, professor did also note that sustainability would best come from government's implementation, uh, especially to do with um, putting down the laws and regulations around it so that bigger companies were adhere to those policies. Uh, however, this could vary between governments because uh, some governments would have uh, resources um, depending on maybe oil or things that are not so great for the environment, but that's their main um, source of income for the country. So it, it would vary between the um, governments, which makes it a very, very difficult um, topic to challenge. Uh, it seems like there's no one size fits all solution for sustainability in life sciences. The discussion also took a bit of a turn. Our professor wanted to ask us a question whether um, we know if electric cars are more or less sustainable than a normal car. So you have to be, uh, it's not, you, you, we cannot say loud enough and people would not hear it. But again, I mean, in spite of all this, I do think that making electric car is good because this would develop new technologies. If you don't have this step, you will not have the next. Yes. So it, I wouldn't advocate against that. Yes, it's more damaging, but if you look how many cars in the, on the planet and how many electric cars on the planet, it's just a promile, just very small number but whoever is making electric cars they're already thinking about how to make better uh, and more sustainable batteries because source of lithium is limited and they have to find new way can we find let's say solar car or something like that <laughs> that is very very interesting to know um better call my dad and tell that before he's <laughs> in a new car <laughs> He, uh, should, he should he should buy hybrid. So this is maybe kind of the best way <laughs> between two worlds here. Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. I didn't know that. Okay. I didn't know that. Well, Note to self when I could afford a car. <laughs> <laughs> uh, definitely, I agree on that. 
um in that case uh, what what kind of advancements interest you and like that you find super exciting over the past i guess six months to about a year just personally speaking because i know you're quite keen on the commercial sector yeah i mean let's say from from medical point uh i really uh i'm really excited about immuno-oncotherapy immuno-oncology car t car nk uh car macrophages coming soon uh you will be able to make them from uh induced pluripotent stem cells from universal donor induced pluripotent stem cells i think this is the future uh this would cut manufacturing costs significantly and so this is the way that this therapy would be affordable and i'm very optimistic about that so that is to me I mean, the biggest, like something like discovery of antibiotics. That's the level. It takes some time, but it's going there. I'll put that in perspective. I think it's very good. It's very, let's say, if I have funds to invest, yes, I would invest in that. Uh, it's really lovely to hear you say that because the next question just perhaps to be um what is it Ayo? <laughs> oh like if you like if you if if i came across a sum of money where would you uh where would you think i should invest that money if it was going to be in a stem cell company or definitely definitely cell therapy of cancer party mm -hmm. cells and definitely again not any not personalized one it should be allogeneic, it should be IPS derived, and it should be universal donor IPS. It could be universal donor embryonic stem cells also. Mm -hmm. And this is starting, I don't know, there is company, why said they're making universal donor embryonic stem cells uh, in developing treatment for diabetes. But uh, that's okay. I, I mean, I'm, I'm more, more excited about uh, cancer therapy. Mm. and universal donor IPS as a source. That's really, um, that's, that's quite a list of things. <laughs> All the research is yeah. to go universal. To check stuff. that off, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, but because, because you look, you look what is happening. So people start, there are a few companies that make this uh, CAR T cells and CAR T cells work. And uh, if you take, uh, why they're expensive? Because they're taking, uh, it's, it's personalized therapy. So mm. they're taking your T cells, uh, doing some genetic modification, teaching them how to attack tumor, then putting back in your body. So this is why it's expensive. It's time, also it's time consuming. It's, uh, and it's now uh, when technologies start to roll out, it's actually bottleneck um, because companies cannot process sufficient number of the people that want this therapy and they need this therapy. So how to bypass, how to cut the costs is that you have one source that works for everyone so that you don't need to take cell T cells from individual patients or NK cells so that you have already allogeneic sitting on off shelf. Okay, ideally IPS or, or embryonic. You can differentiate them to T cells and K cells. Protocols are known, highly efficient, works. But then it's a problem. Uh, uh, it would it's immunotolerance. It would its host would attack them. Recognize as foreign. So the only way would be to use genetic engineering to actually make them invisible. And this is what companies are doing. And there is like now what some 15 clinical trials with such that cell. Yeah. And they work nicely. Then there is another problem. What if something happened and those cells, let's say, turn malignant and uh, then host uh, immune system would not be able to recognize. So, okay, further engineering is done. They're putting suicide genes in the cells. And so, so it is, this is what is use of 
all these new technologies like CRISPR and so on using to really genetically modify pluripotent stem cells in order them to be control differentiation control uh, and not recognized by uh, recipients immune system of recipients but then that you can really simply kill them destroy them by adding some drug let's say tetracycline or whatever uh, and that that is the future this is how uh, you will also decrease the cost of manufacturing because you can make millions of the cells for everyone it would awesome. take maybe let's say sorry so it will take maybe 10 years or something i don't know but okay. it's going that way mm. so that's in the near future that's good looking ahead that's really good uh, it definitely when you pointed out that it would cause uh solve the problem of the cost of goods as well and reduce the production costs and that that's a really good point i guess for investors to keep in mind that it would cost a lot more to make medicine just for you than it is to make for a thousand people yeah but no but this is Tim. if you remember stories about ips cells when the first time they were discovered by yamanaka everyone talk oh ips are like personalized therapy but no. then after like personalized therapy was done on two people only for mm. eye disease and then they say oh, it's too expensive they can't afford it mm. then they start to look uh japanese this happened in japan so japanese government and scientists they start to look different way then they start to find like uh they didn't think about universal donor but it is it's like uh uh certain haplotypes of uh hla that they can fit to different mm. more more uh recipients than to one but then after crispr was discovered then merging those two technologies together so now we can we can play with that mm. so yes. it's it's by time it's not uh mm. it's not single discovery it's uh and who knows what would have, what people will find soon that maybe even even they may become obsolete they may actually do something else soon yeah well that's that's looking very far into the future but i do agree on that sentiment that things are moving very quickly so you don't yeah. never really know when the things that just been invented is going to become obsolete in however many years um but yeah we're really Really glad to hear your opinions on that. And I'm sure the listeners are very happy to hear tips <laughs> on uh, where to look at in the industry of cell and gene therapy. After taking the opportunity to get some investment tips from Professor Dusko, we wanted to save the most important questions for last and get to know the man himself. Have you really had an in-depth, nuanced conversation if you don't leave knowing someone's favourite movie or dessert? um do we have any more questions are you um so we have the most important questions for last mm. um, so <laughs> we have to get to know you questions um so i think there are like seven or so um and the first one is do you have a favorite dessert of course that i do uh there are two of them it's chocolate and ice cream but it doesn't mean that is chocolate ice cream the best Oh. They're two, two independent desserts. <laughs> I see. And can I ask so favorite you... flavor of ice cream and favorite? F and are you dark milk? No, dark I mean chocolate? if I go dark chocolate, that's fine. But uh, uh, ice cream, I like fruity. I like lemony, that of the mm. kind of this type. Refreshing. Yeah. So yeah. I didn't know that about you. That's really. <laughs> oh, I cannot resist ice cream. <laughs> Uh, chocolate. <laughs> very difficult uh, this may or may not be related but what's your favorite way to relax i like travel mm. that's okay when i'm at home let's say i like to watch good movie that that's really relaxed me but mm -hmm. i have to get really engrossed in the movie it's, mm -hmm. it has to be good movie but uh out of the traveling Mm. love it and when i travel then i can put my head on rest i don't think about work if yeah. i'm not traveling if i'm sitting at home it's always always problems keep 
keep coming and you start to think and it's cannot get rid of them. But in traveling, it's different. <laughs> That's really good to know. Um, what's your favorite place that you've been to then? Rio oh. in Brazil. Oh. That's, I think, the most amazing city I've been. There are a lot of other places that I visited and seen and I want to go again and so on, but the Rio had something special. Oh. Very well, how long did you go for? Did you go for a while or was it like a weekend? Uh, I've, well, I went to Rio three times uh, and I, you hear about Carnival this, that, but it yeah. is more the, the, uh, the feeling when you walk on the beach, when you go in the city, the Every it's, it's some, something very cool. It has everything. Mm. Oh, that's amazing. That's nice. And, and I like London. Mm. It is. Uh, I, I lived in Tokyo. I lived in San Francisco. Traveled to New York many times. But a place where I would stay and live always is London. Mm. It's it has such mixture of everything. Mm. No other city has it. And if you compare with New York, London has more soul. It's more, um, it's, it's, you have everything here. Mm, I see. Would you agree with that, Ayo? <laughs> well, I feel like I'm missing out now. So I feel like, <laughs> like we want to move city. Um, <laughs> you might need to move here. That exactly. is. Exactly. <laughs> You have you have to love big cities, so this is other thing. Yeah, and I do love big cities, so uh, I'm biased here, so I cannot say how it's in Cardiff or other smaller cities. But I do I do like living in big cities. Yeah, it can't be the convenience. I think. That's um, true. Yeah. Oh. Um. So you said that you don't watch TV programs, but what's your oh. favorite movie? Matrix. Ooh, okay. I saw it. I saw it fourteen times. <laughs> uh, Matrix one. I have to make correction. <laughs> Matrix <laughs> two, three, four, whatever. No, please no. So just Matrix one. <laughs> oh, I see. You're a red pill. Um, blue or pill. blue pill? Yes. Yeah, it, it was it was really like uh, at that time I was working on Exocellular Matrix mm -hmm. and uh, the whole concept of Matrix made like it's quite cool. I like it. Yeah. I just even started one one of review papers that they published with quotes uh, from Matrix. <laughs> <laughs> I do love that. That's okay. <laughs> But then Matrix 2 and 3 and said that it was disappointment after disappointment after disappointment. So why you just go back to make the, to the first Matrix? Just to... That's what I can watch anytime. <laughs> oh, good to know. Um, um, uh, well, I mean, I know maybe you've mentioned to me that you watch uh, WeWork, but what are your um, other TV programs that you, not programs, but just series that you like? Sometimes I stumbled something that caught my attention. Mm -hmm. And then, yeah, it's like, okay, you watch. You get hooked. And I, I don't want to watch TV because I get hooked on series. And then I spend like whole weekend starring in TV <laughs> instead of doing something better. I see. And uh, so it's no. Uh, but yeah, I like, for example, I like. Now I'm watching, uh, when I watched TV recently, uh, David Attenborough has a new series about Wild Islands. So it is yeah. Wild Isles. So it is about uh, wildlife in the UK and British Islands. And this is, yeah, I, I do regularly watch. So it's mm -hmm. now it's episode four is out. Uh, so. I see, I see. Well, you're not the only one, Professor. I think all of us have experienced some kind of binge watching <laughs> yeah so it's a phenomenon yeah, I mean, for example squid game i mean i couldn't stop it <laughs> uh, and that was in like for two or tokyo eyes and i mean two nights in the row and still to fall asleep in the front of tv <laughs> 
know. <laughs> the next question is are you a fictional or non fiction person when it comes to books? Fiction. Fiction. Do you have a favorite but, fiction? Uh, when I, yeah, yeah, I do, but it is uh, it is actually when I say what it is, people say, "Well, but that's not uh, it's not the book. It's not it's uh, uh, from Samuel Beckett's Waiting for Godot. It's a drama. It's a play. Oh. I read it first as a book, and I saw play much many years later. Yeah, and I like I liked a lot. Yeah, mm, so it lived up to expectations from the book then. Yeah, that's good. I love when that happens. It's usually the other way around. It's op usually it's opposite. Usually it's opposite. Usually, yeah. But that was to me was discovered the whole concept mm. of uh, what the play, what the story wanted to say. It's, it's timeless. Waiting for something that happened, and uh, it's like people are just waiting, and they don't even know what they're waiting. They're waiting for, I don't know. In the, the place Godov, mysterious Godov could be God to, to do something about their miserable lives. And they personally, they do nothing. They're sitting and waiting. Mm. And this was, I read it in high school, and that was the end of high school, beginning of probably university. And that was actually kind of mind opening. Mm. I'm going to read now. Sounds so interesting. <laughs> but but recently, let's put from real fiction is the Oryx and Craig. Mm. It is for Margaret Atwood's book. It's very it's it's thin. It maybe less than two hundred something pages. You read in one evening, but it's mm. amazing. It's about genetic engineering in the future. Oh, and she really. So what was cool about? Uh, it's in the book started uh, like um, I don't know you you should read it I don't know. <laughs> no, 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 no. It's it's very good book. I see, and she's quite well known for um her book the Handmaid's Tale. Handmaid's Tale. Everyone it was uh, watching on TV and so on. Book was good. TV series maybe first part okay, but then enough. But Oryx and Craig is something that I I mean. It's something special. Wow. It's ingenious. Well, we have to read it now, are you? <laughs> this is the best way to get book recommendations ever. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> oh, that's true. But no, it's, for example, it's like uh, when I have people job interview, I ask them, what is your favorite book? What is your favorite movie? Then you know about person. Mm. That's, that's true. true. That's true. It's a great way to know um, the man behind the science. <laughs> uh, I'm very, very happy with this um, segment, uh, which is the end of the episode. Um, but yeah, we I think both of us just want to thank you for coming on this yes. episode and imparting your knowledge on um, yeah. cells and giving us a little peek into your um, personal taste in ice cream. Which is well, <laughs> thank you. Thank you guys for having me. It was a pleasure. Oh, and so good luck with podcast. Thank, thank you. you. Bye. Bye. <laughs> okay. Oh wait.